Well, it, it kind of happened again. I, uh, I started putting my notes together for this message a few weeks ago, which is what I do. And then I just read some surprising statistics that kind of inspired me. I, I want to share at least the statistics with you. First, is the self-improvement market size is expected to reach $14 billion in the next few years. Okay. Self-help book sales reach $18.6 million in 2019. And in 2018, self-help audiobook revenue reached $769 million. There is a market for people wanting to improve themselves and they want to find a quick and easy way to, to do it. And I had, I had intended to share a message about how we as a society had lost touch with our ability to improve ourselves because we're trying to do it ourselves. So I started preparing a message about how Jesus is our model and our guide to steal a popular term. He is our life coach and it's free. Well, not exactly free. It did cost him his life, but it saves our souls. And as I started organizing my ideas, I realized that the model of Jesus's guidance was based more on who he was and how the influence of how he lived and interacted with people uh, was, was the power of his guidance, even, even more so than the bold commandments that he gave. And the message evolved, and now it is something completely different, and I'd already put the sign on the board, so we're calling it selfless help, but a little bit of a, a twist on that. And I'll save that one for another Sunday, but let's, let's begin. We know from the Bible that Jesus, what Jesus came to do. In fact, the second part of John 3.16 and 3.17, 3.17 tells us that he came to save the world. And Luke 19.10 tells us that also to seek and save the lost. Now, these are a couple of very ambitious and very important purposes. And we study and celebrate leaders who have guided us through global conflict, through, through economic depressions and local disasters. We know the names of these great men and women who have gotten us through wars and, and economic downturns and, and, and such. And we certainly recognize the valiant efforts of our first responders and our soldiers who rush in to rescue people from certainly certain death. And rightly so, that we recognize the heroic and courageous deeds of those who serve. Now think about Jesus, who came to do this for every single person, in every situation and for all time. This isn't just a great leader or a noble hero. Jesus is a savior. In fact, Jesus was often questioned about his claims of who he was and why he came. So listen to his reply in one of these situations. This is found in John 10, verses 25 through 30. It says, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe me. He's referring to who he is. He says, the works I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Now there are a lot of powerful and comforting statements in Jesus' words. I, I love that nothing can snatch them. Nothing will snatch them out of my hand or my father's hands. You are his cherished possession. But he also referred to us as a sheep. Now, I don't know if that sits well with you. Like it's, but, but listen to this. Shepherds lead a manageable number of sheep from the front of the flock. They, they guide them. They pull them along. Shepherds move forward at the head of the flock, and the sheep follow because they know and trust the shepherd. I'd once seen this example of, on leadership, and it was, it was kind of a string. It's really all it was. And he just 
put it there and, and he said, try to lead by pushing something like a string and it just bunches up. You certainly can't control where it goes, but if you want to lead, you, you pull along this string and everything comes with it in a line. But I would venture to say that regardless of your occupation or, or work history, you, you've had a boss. We've all had a boss. And I'm sure some were good leaders and, and some were not so good at leading. Some led from the front, encouraging you, and, and you followed because you respected them or their position. And some led from the back by telling you where to go and what to do and, and giving you the proverbial kick in their tail end to keep you moving, right? Some inspired you by motivating you. Others motivated you with fear, like of losing your job or getting in trouble. And I know I've had a couple of both kinds over the years. But which is more effective? I mean, I would argue both effective, but long-term, which is effective, right? Or better, which is healthier for the organization? With leadership, there are two types of respect. It's the respect that the title gives you and demands. You're my boss, so I'll do what you say. You're my sergeant, and chain of command says, I'll do what you say, those kinds of things. And there's the type of respect that you earn, right? And sometimes there are leaders that are not bosses because you respect them, and they lead the organization from within, and a good leader will be developing those leaders underneath them. And we see this model with Jesus Christ. He was a leader, and he had his disciples. And what did he tell us to do? Go make more. Multiply the leadership. Make disciples of all people. This latter one, is based on trust. Though this is, this is hardest to earn, right? To earn the trust. You have to prove yourself because trust isn't something that people just freely give. So you, they watch what you do and how you act and how you talk. And then they, they extend some trust. And if you meet that trust, they extend you a little more trust. And there's a whole book called The Speed of Trust. And that will tell you exactly how quickly change can happen by the way people are, are speeding, you know, trusting you along. But if you want to lead from Trump, you Trump front, you better have the trust of the ones you're asking to follow you. And I'll tell you, trust is the quickest thing to disappear. I mean, sometimes it's like that. And, you, and someone feels misled or betrayed and that trust is gone and you've got to start over earning. It is so easy, so easy to lose that. But great leaders have an uncanny ability to bring out the best in other people. And hopefully you've been able to experience this. They're also genuinely caring. They have humility right? They never say things, I'm the boss, that's why. And they lead from, through influence as much as commands, right? They, they influence you. They're all in. They're, they're working alongside you, even if they're, they're in a different position. So perhaps that's where the expression came from. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. And I would say that even comes with sharing the gospel. Now think about the person that is Jesus Christ, when we follow his teachings and live the life that he exemplified, aren't we being our best, living to the full potential of who we were created to be? Isn't he bringing out the best in us as we follow him? Aren't the gospels full of stories of Jesus' care for others, his immense humility, right? And how he led from the front as crowds of people literally followed him from place to place to place never able to get enough knowledge or wisdom or encouragement from this man. Aren't we still doing this today in places and times just like this, following Jesus to get that knowledge, that wisdom, that, that peace, that encouragement? Jesus brought out the best of the people he interacted with. Even as God's own son, he acted with humility, respecting and having concern for absolutely everyone. 
The gospel records many stories of Jesus' interactions with people. Each encounter reveals something about the nature of Christ, allowing us to have a better understanding of his mission. And these stories also reveal God's loving nature. And I'm going to take some time this morning and speak briefly about several different people that had an interaction with Jesus. Each one of these could be a study on their own, and I'm going to tell you where to find them. But I'm going to move through just a little bit quickly um, and just share a few details about each that I'd like you to consider. And I'd like you to consider two things as I do. First, what is this interaction? What do we learn from the story? What does it reveal about the nature of God? as shown through Jesus Christ. Secondly, which of these people do you most identify with? And there's probably one of these that resonates with you. The first is Mary Magdalene. We introduced to her in Luke 8, verses one through two, which I'll read. It says, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, the 12 disciples, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. So this is someone that that Jesus had driven demons out of, had had performed some miracles for and in front of, and she was all in, right? She's now. Maybe she's she's a follower of Jesus. She's following around Jesus and the 12 disciples. And maybe you can't identify with Jesus driving demons out of you, but he has helped you battle a sin or addiction, surely. And perhaps he helped you face or overcome a fear. I think we could probably count ourselves among that. And Mary Magdalene became a person who was wholly devoted to Christ and his ministry. She followed him all the way to the cross, literally. Her great faith and steadfast service are powerful examples. We know from the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and John that she was present at Jesus' crucifixion and at the time of his death. She was one of the people who discovered the empty tomb and later received instructions from the angels and the appearance of Jesus himself after the resurrection. To recall, we, we talked about this last week's message when we talked about you know, risking our foolishness. And she ran back and told the disciples, hey, this guy that we saw died. I saw him. The tomb was empty. And then I saw him and he told you guys to go to Galilee and wait on him, right? She was so excited and she didn't care if they believed him or not because she knew that that had happened. From the moment Jesus made a change in her life, she was changed and she was all in following him. The next is Nicodemus. And perhaps you're more like Nicodemus. Nicodemus was an educated, wealthy, and a respected man. The Gospel of John captures uh, Nicodemus' interaction with Jesus. And we're first introduced to him in John 3, verses 1 through 12. Now, that sounds familiar because right in the middle of that is John 3, 16, okay? So this sets the stage. But we learned that Nicodemus came to Jesus during the night and learned about the necessity of, of new birth. So he kind of snuck in and talked to Jesus. He was a Pharisee, right? And we can speculate that, that perhaps he was worried about being judged or caught, or, or maybe he was just excited in the middle of the night, or, or maybe this is a metaphor that he was in doubt, and that was the night of the darkness he was in when he came to Jesus. But he honored Jesus in this interaction by calling him rabbi and he acknowledged that, that Jesus comes from God based on this conversation. And we skip ahead to John 7, verse 50 to 52. And we find Nicodemus defending Jesus before the Pharisees at the festival of booths. And he says, when other Pharisees spoke against Jesus and sought his arrest and, and crucifixion and punishment, Nicodemus argued that Jesus should at least have a fair trial according to Jewish law, okay? Now, maybe that's not a full defense, but, but he was in there. He was this man who, who was a doubter, who had believed other things, was, was in there alongside Jesus saying, let's at least... Give him the chance to speak. 
And the, the gospel doesn't speak really of the motives of defending Jesus. But we learn in John 19, 39 through 42 that, that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe to prepare Jesus' body for the burial. Okay, we know Joseph of Arimathea provided the tomb, okay? But, but and, and so we, we understand that he was a disciple of Jesus. And there's really no clear statement about Nicodemus' faith, but there, there are things that indicate from this first conversation with Jesus where he said, you must be baptized by the spirit, not by water. And he comes through and, and, and now he is bringing all the spice that number one indicates that Nicodemus is probably fairly wealthy, but he also recognizes Jesus as king because this is an enormous amount of myrrh. I mean, it was one of the gifts that the three wise men brought to Jesus at his birth. And he brings 75 pounds, which is enough to bury royalty. So this says a lot about Nicodemus's thought process on who Jesus was. And Nicodemus's encounter with Christ is a, a fascinating look at the beautiful simplicity of the new birth, as it was explained to him. A concept that, that honestly, Nicodemus had trouble grasping at first with his analytical and scholarly mind. So maybe you're more like that. I'm trying to rationalize and, and reason how all this could be. What about Zacchaeus? We talked about him last week a little bit. Zacchaeus, the little tax collector who'd climbed the tree to, to see Jesus above the crowd. And the story of Zacchaeus is shared in Luke 19, 1 through 10, but it reveals Jesus' love for all people, despite their backgrounds or questionable character. And this man, Zacchaeus, changed his life. He said, I will pay back anything that I've taken with interest, with penalty. You know, he's going to pay it all back. This man, this tax collector that Jesus had called out and said, I'm going to come and have dinner with you tonight. But the woman at the well, the story of the woman at the well is found in John 4, 7 through 26. And, and unlike Nicodemus, who was a wealthy and educated Jew, the woman at the well is a Samaritan woman. It has been supposed that she was not well-respected, which is why she was alone at the well in the middle part of the day when no one else was around. And you may recall that the Jews and Samaritans typically don't associate with each other. That was part of the interaction, this conversation that she had. Like, like the interaction with Nicodemus where Jesus was explaining the power and mystery of baptism by the Spirit, the woman at the well is being told about living water. You know, the woman was thinking literally with, you know, give me water to drink. And he says, I, I bring the living water. You will thirst no more. And she says, where can I get this? And like Nicodemus, she is both confused and curious. And, and both Nicodemus and the woman at the well come to realize who it is that is speaking to them. And that they have absolutely want these things that Jesus is offering the world. And Jesus' conversation with this woman shows that the message of the gospel supersedes all barriers, moral barriers, social barriers, religious barriers. Jesus came for all of us. The next is the adulteress. Before you get nervous that I'm asking you if you identify with an adulterer, let me explain. The story is found in John 7, 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. And I'll read this. If you want to join in, uh, we're looking at John 8, starting at verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and Jesus said to her, Teacher, and said to Jesus, I'm sorry, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. 
But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left and the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go now and leave your lives of sin. Now that, that is repentance, right? Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, but he said, leave your life of sin. Turn away from that. More importantly, turn towards me. Now we don't know what was written in the sand, if it was a word, a picture, or anything else, but whatever it was spoke volumes to everybody who saw it, enough that they left and she repented her sin. And this narrative reveals the compassion of Jesus for an exploited person who, who needed forgiveness and grace. Perhaps you identify as someone who needs both the conviction of a savior and the power of his redemption. Consider this. If, if Jesus were to approach you in the midst of, of your condemnation and quietly wrote or drew something in front of you that made you turn to him, what would it be? What would Jesus have to write or say that would make you realize you're not condemned, you're convicted, but you are saved? What if you were part of this group persecuting someone, really down on them and beating them up for their sins while you still have your own? And Jesus came up to you and wrote or drew something in front of you that made you stop and think about yourself and go home and examine your own life. What would that be? What would that be? Next is Saul and Paul, and you know I have to mention him. Jesus meets a man who I would call a terrorist, an absolute bully and brute, and Jesus changed his life. Paul went from being a Jew that persecuted the disciples to one of the most influential apostles and missionaries of the gospel the world has ever seen, writing a majority of the New Testament. The story of Paul's conversion can be found in Acts 9, 1 through 11. This is when he loses his vision and, and, and you know, he's, he's, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And, and, and I don't think Paul at that point didn't realize that's what he was doing. It wasn't personal. He was just persecuting all the Jews for, for blasphemy. But his, he was given instructions and he was blessed and, 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 and literally opened his eyes. He, he realized who Jesus was and, and, and he changed his story. He went from a persecutor to one who, who recruited disciples. And, and he's one of the first Christian missionaries to argue for the inclusion of Gentiles in the covenants of Israel with Christ. Right? Because, because Christ said he came for all people. Now listen to Paul's own words recorded in this letter to the early Christians in Galatians. If you want to read it along, it's Galatians 1. I'm going to start at verse 13. It says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Now that sets the stage. He says, You've heard of me. I was a, a brute. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. So he is an up-and-coming Jew, right? Remember this guy who says he doesn't boast? <coughs> but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. And he goes on and he spends his time. He said, he was so on fire that he wasn't going to go just become another one of those guys. He was going to go and make disciples. 
Maybe your encounter with Jesus has made you like Paul, on fire for the gospel and wanting to spread its good news everywhere and with everyone. As we just read, Paul didn't meet up with the remaining disciples. He went on his own and made disciples of Jesus, like Timothy and Titus and many others. By doing so, Paul was following the instructions of the Great Commission given by Jesus himself, which was to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that that Jesus had commanded. Paul did that. Just two more. Pilate, we can't get in this time of year without thinking about Pontius Pilate. He tried to pass off the decision to accept or deny who Jesus was. He sent him off for Herod to judge, but the crowd brought Jesus back to him for a second time to make his decision. Now I'm going to pick this up in Luke 23, starting verse 13. He said, so Jesus had already been sent away and is back now. He says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the, the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Okay. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown in a prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found him in no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and release him. But the loud shouts, they insistent, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. Now for Matthew 27, 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Now perhaps you identify more with Pilate. Having Jesus in your life and wanting him to be in your life for a moment and you didn't recognize or accept who he was. Did you think you could ignore the decision to accept Jesus, but then come to realize that not accepting him is the same as denying him? You're either in or you're out. But then you went on and regret you ignored your own conscience and you missed an opportunity. But friends, I've got some great news for you. Let me assure you that you have not missed an opportunity because you have it right now. Every day, Jesus reaches out to you. Every day, God looks down to you and he extends a hand and he says, accept my invitation. Turn away from what you're doing and accept my invitation and I will pull you forward with me. And I want to prove this point that there's no final moment, no missed opportunity by by sharing one more example. And it's the man, the thief dying on the cross. Again, just perfect for this time of year. And his story can be found in Luke 23, starting in verse 39. It says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. He says, Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he turned and he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, and I love this. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. You will join me in heaven. 
You see, Jesus' words of compassion from the cross are reminded that God's grace is available for all. Now, we've looked at eight stories from the Bible, people who've had an encounter with Jesus and been changed by it. Each one revealed the nature of Jesus, the, the good shepherd who finds the lost, who brings them into his care and protection, and then leads from the front to salvation. So now we're full circle, and we've come to a final interaction. Who will it be? It's you. It's you. Every day, Jesus interacts with you through the beauty of creation, through the way he moves pieces around that you see, sometimes moves pieces around your life you can't see, making things happen, lining up opportunities for you to be a good disciple, opportunities for you to be blessed, opportunities for you to live a godly life and love and care for other people. We go to Paul's letters to people just like us to hear the good news. And I want to share just three. Romans 6, 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism and the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too have a new life. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who, lived, who loved me and gave himself for me. And we can all say these same things. And this last one, really encouraging, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, 2. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. We say people can't change and, and people can't change on their own. You can read all the self-help books and you want. And if you're really, really committed, you might be able to do something. But if you want to change, if you want to change, Ask God to change your heart. And if you're sideways with someone or a situation and you're just unhappy or angry or hurt, the most effective thing you can do is ask God to change your heart and watch if that doesn't change someone else's or the situation. So selfless help. Jesus came to serve, right? It was selfless of him to come and do what he did. These things that we try to do ourselves, we can't do by ourselves. We need a savior. And thank God he sent one. How will Jesus change you or how has he? And when he tries again, will you let him? Let's make that our prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, the miraculous gift of your son who came not to lord over us, but to serve us. Not to push us, not to force us, not to coerce us into obedience, but to lead us, to guide us, to pull us into a godly life. Father, in his short life here on earth, he, he left so many examples, had so many interactions, and, and perhaps we identify with, with Mary as, as we've, Magdalene, as we've overcome an addiction or faced a fear, and now we're all in. Or maybe we haven't decided that we're all in yet, despite what he's done for us. Lord, maybe we're, we're like Paul, used to make fun of those crazy Christians, those, those Jesus freaks, but now we want to be one of them. Maybe we're like the woman that, well, we don't understand, or the adulteress, we don't understand how, how God could love or send someone to care about us, but he does. Lord, help us to not be like Pilate, to have chances and, and to say, nope, or I'll, I'll, I'll be saved later when I need it. Let me enjoy my life as it is. Lord, let us not be like the dying thief who at the 11th hour accepted him because if he had accepted him long ago, he would have had the benefit of those blessings for all that time. 
So Lord, let us not waste one more moment in making that decision of accepting your invitation to come to the table, to accept the gift of grace and mercy and to secure that promise you've made to each one of us that you love us and you want good for us. You have a purpose for our life and more importantly, you want us in heaven even more than we want to be there ourselves. Lord, that is the hope that we have. Lord, that is the hope that we are commanded to share. And it's in your son's name we pray that we're able to take advantage of every single one of these opportunities starting in this very second. Amen.